Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, everyone, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet, and I am thrilled to welcome you to the second episode in our four-part special series on the four principal commitments of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Today, we'll be taking a look at his second commitment, a commitment to the promotion of religious harmony. Now, the Dalai Lama is probably the world's most famous Buddhist, and he is a spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhists, both outside and inside Tibet. Yet, despite this one-of-a-kind background, His Holiness is committed to the principle of religious harmony. In fact, he believes all major world religions have the same potential to create good human beings. Therefore, it's important for different religious traditions to recognize the value in one another and to respect one another. But don't just take my word for that. Let's hear now the words of His Holiness himself. One of my commitment is the try to promote genuine harmony among different religious traditions. See, for that, genuine harmony is developed on the basis of mutual respect, mutual admiration. Now that we've heard from the Dalai Lama, let's explore his second commitment with our special guest for today's Tibet talk, Professor Siddiq Wahid. Siddiq Wahid traces his family to the Tibetan Muslim community in Lhasa, Tibet's capital city. His father was one of the last caravanners bringing the official tributes from the people of Ladakh to His Holiness at a time when there was still peace and harmony in the Himalayas before Communist China's occupation of Tibet. Today, Professor Wahid is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research. He has also been involved in numerous interfaith engagements and conferences organized by His Holiness. Recently, Professor Wahid spoke with our ICT president, Tencho Getzo. Let's hear their conversation now. Hello, Siddhikla. It's so good to have you join us here straight from Srinagar. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here to, to, uh, also. Thank so you. I think we can start off right away. Siddhikla, yes. I want to start first by asking you to um, share with us, um, and you, you and your family have a special connection to Tibet. Can you share with us your you know, connections to yes. Tibet, Tibetans and the Soldiers? I think we can go as far back uh, for the direct link uh, with Tibet. We can go far as far back as 1820, because uh, by that time, uh, we as a family were settled mm -hmm. in Ladakh. Um, and that migration took place from actually on the male side from Kashmir. And the Kashmir migration from Kashmir took place in about uh, somewhere between 1690 and 1710. So between the 17th and the 18th century, the turn of the century. And we went there from Kashmir as traders and very quickly became landed gentry or who owned land. Uh, and then started to also sort of uh, trade. Our 
the first batch from our family or one branch of the family is a better word to use, I think, um, went from Ladakh to uh, Leh to Lhasa in 1820. I think the 20s about, you know, mm -hmm. sort of mid 20s or so is what I've been able to peg it to. And we started to sort of about uh, 30, uh, 20 or 30 years dense. Uh, we also started to get involved in the Lochak or the annual tribute that was, which was actually biannual or actually also sometimes people say triannual, uh, depending on the fortunes of the family that was doing the Lochak. And there were one or two families doing it. Ours was one of them, you mm -hmm. know, and it was unique because as a Muslim family, we were doing it. And mm -hmm. so that was where we established our connection. And this was uh, the tribute and the, from the king of Ladakh. Ladakh to the uh, Potala, and it was then, and and the return sort of uh, visit was a group, a uh, family from Lhasa who would be called the Chaba, and they would come and bring tea to trade. So it was a sort of like a tribute come trade mission either way, and uh, so that was how our uh, family got established there, and so by the time. The 1950s rolled around. It was well over a century, almost a century and a half now. As you were saying, I think most people will be surprised to hear. Many are surprised when we tell them that Tibet was also home to pockets of Muslim community and that we had several mosques in Hassa and also in um, Shikate. And, you know, and we've, I've grown up kind of hearing the closeness and the relations between the Islam and Islamic and Buddhist communities um, in Lhasa and uh, in Tibet. Can you give our viewers an understanding of that relationship and the history of it? Yes. Actually, it's not very surprising that there should be Tibetan-speaking Muslims in, in Lhasa. Because if you look at a map, and very mm -hmm. often people don't look at a map. I tell our younger generation, look at a map. And when you see, you'll see that there were trading uh, Muslim communities surrounding Tibet in a lot mm -hmm. of ways uh, because there were people from Xinjiang coming into uh, Tibet. There were people from, well, Ladakh, you know, mm -hmm. which is abutted by Kashmir, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Muslim community that were coming in. In uh, Amdo, of course, yes. you know, there was a Hoi community yes. as well as some Tibetan speaking who were uh, there also. So, it's not at all surprising that there should be, and they, of course, came to the center. Um, and at that time, both an, an expansionist, shall we say, Qing dynasty was also coming in into Xinjiang and Tibet, you know, and influencing these two regions very largely, including Mongolia. So because of this, I think that uh, there was a cosmopolitan air, if you will, in uh, in Lhasa very much. And there were people, uh, you know, from Muslim communities, both Tibetan speaking and uh, Mandarin speaking, who were mixing there. And in fact, in our own family, I think there has been a, a marriage into the Hue on, on, on the woman's side. So we, we have some, you know, who, who are uh, a mix of that also in our family. So that's how I think the connection came to be established. Um, and it is at least uh, three centuries long, if not longer. And also the Ladakhi Muslim community also has contributions into Tibetan culture as well with the yes. uh, Nangma Tushye 
stones, those are... Absolutely, yes, yeah? yes, very yeah. much. And then during the, is it, was it during the fifth Dalai Lama that the Ladakhi community was more established with... Yes, it was, it was during the fifth. And, and it was a very uh, generous uh, sort of, uh, you know, offer to, for land and territory and so forth. And, you know, legend has it, and this could be apocryphal, but mm -hmm. th there was an arrow drawn from the Putala, then fired, and, and the area that came within the ambit of that arrow was, uh, you know, given to, to the community to settle in and so forth. And certainly, you know, I went, and as, um, as an adult, because mm -hmm. I spent the first, in fact, uh, four years of my life in uh, Lhasa, uh, mm -hmm. having been born in Kalimpong, in 1951, then my parents took me there to Lhasa, and my sister was born in Lhasa itself. You know, so it was a it was a fairly uh, sort of well-established tradition for uh, sort of Muslims to to be living in Lhasa and then interacting uh, with the Tibetan community, the Lhasa Tibetan Buddhist community, Nangpa. You know, very very comfortably, and I remember that. I mean, very very well. My grandparents. Uh, and so forth. They continued that relationship even after coming. They left, I think, in 1957, if I'm not mistaken, and came directly to Kashmir. Uh, so in a sense, came full circle. And the objective was to go to um, Leh. Mm -hmm. And so I remember as a young kid, you know, mm -hmm. basically, I was uh, about not even seven yet. Um, and, and my grandfather took me to Leh because I'd never been to Leh before mm -hmm. then. Um, and, and then he came back and as an adult, I inquired, I said, what was that trip about? It was, that trip was to see where we could settle in Lhasa, I mean, in, in Leh. And he said, well, Leh was too small a village for us after Lhasa. So we settled down in Kashmir itself. Kashmir. You know, so, yes. so that's how yeah. our family sort of, oh. you know, took place. Yes, my, my uh, mother was saying, uh, only remembers your father. And she says, Waila, Waila. So I thought yes. we were talking about a Tibetan, but. Yes, and exactly. And my we, father, of course, was a very deep uh, Tibetophile, you hmm. know, and he uh, loved it. And, and I, I remember he gave up his job uh, in 1958, actually, in preparation for His Holiness's coming and said that we owe it to His Holiness to help the resettlement of the Tibetan refugees who were being anticipated to come along with him. So it was a very, um, uh, you know, very deliberate move on his part to work with the, with the government in exile then uh, in, uh, almost immediately in 1959, starting in 1959. And your father has written about his experiences also. Yes, yes he has. He has. And the book is uh, called Tibetan Caravan. Uh, it's a, around built around the Lopcha mission because one of the last ones, I think it was the last but one caravan in 1942 uh, that my father went along with my grandfather on. Um, and, and when he went on it, he started to practice his English. He had just finished his BA uh, mm -hmm. from Aligar University uh, and he started to write his diary. So the opening uh, words in the book are from that diary having left his wife of literally about three weeks or so, and he was gone for the next year. I don't know how people would consider that in, in the modern age, you know, so to have your husband suddenly leave you 20 days after you get married, you know, but that was what it was. And he went all the for way. For a year-long trip. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, absolutely, yes.
So tell me, Dethikla, I want to ask you your from your personal experience also, because we're talking about his holiness here. When and how was your first interaction with this holiness? Can you share with us? Yes, I was. I, you know, I've been thinking about that. I think it would have been the mid-60s, uh, I think 63, 64 um, or so. My father was in Dharamsala with His Holiness. And I came from school. I was schooled in Darjeeling. And I came for holidays. And he said, you must go and meet His Holiness. Mm -hmm. um, and so it would have been around that time that I uh, met him for the first time. I remember I was taken for an audience with him. And there were about um, six or 10 of us, um, you know, somewhere in that number. And we were waiting in the ante room. Um, and suddenly His Holiness walked in very simply and very, uh, you know, as, as he is going to be um, and things. And all of the students uh, got up. We were about the same age, I think, 13, 12, 13, 14, that uh, age category. And of course, all of them bowed down because they knew exactly what to do. So I also bowed down immediately, you know, imitating them completely. And His Holiness, I think, knew who I was because he walked up and he straightened me up mm -hmm. and he said, you're a Muslim, you know, you're not allowed to bow down before a human being. Mm -hmm. I'm a human being, so you should not bow down. You you cannot imagine the impact that it had on someone like me. You know, I, I will never, ever, I've never ever forgotten it. And it was the most gentle instruction that he was giving me and and it was on two occasions that it struck me as to how compassion i mean that's the only word you can think of he was in in trying to inculcate in me sense of what it was to be a muslim mm -hmm. you know it was that uh, sort of thing and very transparent to me even at that time i mm -hmm. of course was completely Dumbstruck. I mean, I didn't say anything. What am I going to say? So I just obeyed him. That's well, it. A young teenager. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, you, and you've been involved since then, you know, organizing and helping facilitate many, many interfaith, interreligious events yes. with His Holiness. What do you think are the key principles and values that His Holiness advocates for at fostering religious harmony? I think. First of all, what struck me during these, and I've been very fortunate, and I have every time I have been asked, and in uh, on uh, at least uh, one or two of the occasions, directly by your own father, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and say, who said, you know, you have to be involved. So I dropped everything. I mean, there was not a question uh, that I would do it because my father would want want it any differently than that. And so I went, and what strikes me is his ability to listen, mm -hmm. you know, to what somebody is saying and then cut through the jargon, you know, and whether it is academic or whether it is, you know, specific to one confessional religion or the other and actually translate what is being said into plain language and language that can be understood by anybody. So that was the one thing that has struck me every time. I mean, that I've had an occasion to be involved in an event uh, or even not involved in an event, but just being there and, and listening to him speak. I think that that was it. I think his sort of articulation of secular ethics in this day and age is something that is, for, for me, you know, a very central piece, I think, of, of the message that he wants to bring. bring. I think 
to be very honest, you know, the use of the word secular ethics is something that I struggle with in terms of understanding. Uh, but I fully see where His Holiness is coming from, and and I think that what he has to, what he's doing is trying to sort of find a common basic uh, point of interaction, mm-hmm. you know, that that we can have as human beings. And as we know, uh, and and his ability to sort of say that without any sense of, you know, wanting to convert anybody. Exactly. You know, God forbid, yes. into yeah. into Buddhism, or you know, or mm-hmm. encourage anybody to to convert them to Islam, for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's completely sort of missing in that. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense. And and God knows that in this day and age, where mm-hmm. we live in the age of what I call extremes mm-hmm. and only quantity, mm-hmm. um, you know, he uh, represents. The middle path. I mean, I don't know what how else to put it, but oh. a middle path um, and also a life of quality. You know, the mm-hmm. value. And each time he speaks, that comes through very plainly that he's looking at life in a qualitative way. I think that everybody notices it as we come. Uh, so it's it's a program. I think if I can call it that. Mm-hmm. I mean. I, that's a misnomer, but I think it's a it's a program for not mere toleration of the other, you know, mm-hmm. but trying to extract from the other's philosophy, if you will, mm-hmm. something that you can recognize as part of your religion also. Mm-hmm. And I think, and uh, in this way, I mean, my closeness, and I've also had an academic closeness to Buddhism, having studied, mm-hmm. it has been hugely enhanced right through my life. I think enhanced in the way of understanding Islam itself. Yes. Uh, for example, I mean, if, if uh, I'm sure you've observed, you know, Lhasa Khache praying mm-hmm. um, and you see, you know, they're standing straight and they're praying, you know, the Muslim when they pray, they're mm-hmm. praying and standing straight up, mm-hmm. you know, and then bowing down halfway and then bow, and prostrating on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I have gained an understanding of, of that Mm-hmm. Buddhism and mm-hmm. the concept of the mantra, and the mudra, and the mandala, mm-hmm. uh, because in a sense it is all about that. Even when we pray, so so I think that that kind of thing, I think, is facilitated in in an interaction with someone mm-hmm. like His Holiness. I think. Yes, I did completely agree because I remember how often His Holiness says different foods are suited for different bodies, and in that you know. Cultures and religions, they've evolved different ways for different people so that most of the time, what you are born with is probably best suited for you. So every teaching we go to, His Holiness always says, okay, now if you are Christian, think this way. If you are Islam, think this, you know. So he's always so willing to bring everybody together. And not only that, but, but for everybody to value the symbols of their mm-hmm. religion, you know. And for example, when he meets the Lhasa Khache and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when, when he meets Tibetan speaking Muslim uh, mm-hmm. also, you know, first question that he'll ask is, mm-hmm. you know, meaning why aren't you wearing your white cap? You know, and things. So, I mean, uh, especially in my generation uh, and, and low, you know, younger uh, generations, they don't wear that anymore, you know, very much. So, and his insistence is, I don't think it's the white hat 
you know, that he's insisting that you wear, but he's saying that, you know, don't, don't be shy about showing attachment to the symbols uh, of your own religion. Also, His Holiness admits has we did a ICT, we do a uh, calendar every year, yeah. and one year we did it on sacred sites. And nice. for that piece, I was looking for photographs, and there were so many photographs of His Holiness visiting sacred sites of different um, religions. I think he yes. has, you know, made that extra effort to go in yes. many places. Have you been to um, like a Muslim sacred space with His Holiness? And maybe can you share with our viewers how yes. he interacts? Yeah, I unfortunately have not. You know, he's been in Ladakh several times mm -hmm. and he's gone into the mosque. And yes. I'm told that he makes it a point to go into a Sunni mosque and a Shia mosque knowing that we have problems between the Sunnis and the Shias, you know, also internally sometimes um, and things. So he makes it a point to visit them. Uh, he's made it a point also, and I think his uh, sort of interventions have helped considerably in the Muslim Buddhist, uh, shall we say, quarrels uh, that we've had occasionally in Ladakh. I'm sure that it's the grace with which he handles it. Um, and his instructions, sometimes very elliptical, you know, he'll never be very direct in, in what he's saying, but it's very elliptical and, and everybody understands what he's saying. And uh, as, as I'm sure you know, I mean, you know, the Ladakhis, both Muslim as well as um, Buddhists are extreme, very, uh, you know, respectful of and giving uh, full uh, credit to whatever he says you know, and take it very, very seriously. So I'm I'm sure, I don't know again about the specifics, but I'm sure that his visits to Ladakh have helped heal us because now there is a warmth that I haven't seen in the last 35, 40 years, you know, between the two communities, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, which is wonderful to see. And as we are speaking, His Holiness is... Yes, again. I know. Yes, in, in, in uh, Ladakh, yes. In Ladakh, and I think he's spending the whole of August Yes, there. yes, yes. He's spent all of August there and think, uh, you know, he's going to, he is indefatigable, you know, in, in some, uh, completely tireless. He goes to the schools there. He, mm -hmm. he goes to the mosques there. You know, he goes, obviously, to, to the monasteries, you know, mm -hmm. wherever he can. I mm -hmm. think so in that sense, I mean, you know, I think we're all very fortunate to mm -hmm. have his uh, holiness with us. And amongst. I was reading also this time when he traveled to Ladakh, as you were saying, this time when yeah. he traveled to Ladakh, I think when he saw all the welcoming people who had lined up yes. and he, as he got uh, there, he asked, where is the Asakaji? The, <laughs> yes, the, right, exactly. Yes, um, and I yes, think no. he heard. Yeah. And they made yes. an effort to bring all the elders yes. um, who were Absolutely. there in the original days Absolutely. to meet with this holiness. Yes. yes, I think it's it's with a very important message that his holiness does that. And the important message is that Tibetan society is plural. You know, it's not, um, and you cannot equate Buddhism with Tibet. You know, it has, uh, you know, in Ladakh, for example, uh, Ladakhi is a Tibetan language, you know, so you have, in a sense, you have Tibetan speaking Christians as well. And uh, lately I saw that he made it a point to go to the Moravian church in Leh and uh, visit them and things. I'm, I'm sure uh, that, you know, he, he would be very happy to go to the school there eventually, you know, and stuff. But no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have him in uh, Ladakh.
Yes. And broader speaking, Sitikla, in your experience working with um, different faith religious leaders um, in India from different traditions who have responded to His Holiness in promoting religious harmony, how would you say uh, his impact has been? Very strong. I think it was in the year 2017 that I was involved in an interfaith gathering that he had in Delhi. And it was from all faiths, both Indic as well as non-Indic religions, such as Islam um, and things. And they had the, um, you know, sort of theologians, priests, um, and in the case of Muslims, they had imams, the leaders of the prayers, all over there and all speaking and things. It was, I, I felt that it was a very sort of powerful message that uh, he would send you know, on these occasions. He is also, for example, known to be very close to um, Bishop uh, Tutu, for example. And the interaction between them is a camaraderie that, you know, every time I see, I just, it just, it's just a very warm feeling. Uh, yes. There seems to be a complete understanding between them as to yes. what the message to the world should be. And I think, I mean, I've seen him interacting, of course, with imams, um, you know, the leaders of the prayer, because technically in Islam, we don't have a priestly group mm -hmm. at all. You know, and I've heard one person say that every human being is a priest uh, mm -hmm. within Islam, you know, rather than saying there are no priests uh, at all. But uh, so so in that sense, we don't have a clergy in, in Islam. But I've seen him interact with the imams and talk to them and so forth. And they're extremely, you know, they listen, they're deferential um, and, and so forth. So it's it's a very, one of the interactions I think is, is uh, wonderful to see because I think because he listens, mm -hmm. they also listen. You know, it's a, it's a reciprocal sort of uh, act that happens. And I think that it's, it's something, you know, I mean, if you observe these things, then it's just a learning just to see yeah. what's happening, you know, mm -hmm. just, even if you're not involved in it. His uh, holiness as a way of breaking through walls. And I remember hearing that in 2017 at the interfaith event that you mentioned, His holiness yes. was there at the door welcoming and receiving yes. all the faith leaders who attended and also welcoming them to the event. And I think that those kind of gestures at a very small level make a difference. Um, with that, I mean, I, I could go on and on, but I, then I want to also, how do you think um, in participating in gatherings, how can individuals as well as um, religious and political leaders draw inspiration from His Holiness's approach and lessons and for promoting interfaith understanding in the broader context? I think, I mean, the key is, of course, you know, His His Holiness is very charismatic. Anybody who, who meets him uh, knows that. But I think that what we have to do really is we tend to use his popularity, his holiness's uh, popularity uh, in the person that he is, you know, because he's very affable and he's very thing. But perhaps I think what we need to do is dwell more on the profundity of his ideas, uh, which, which he sometimes very casually mentions. Sometimes he even mentions it in a joking manner. Mm -hmm. But if you can absorb it and about think on it and 
you know, to use a word that is overused these days, but to meditate on it for a while, I think we'll go very far. Uh, it certainly is not. He's not, you know, he's not exactly a politician trying to rile people up or, or something like that. So you have to, uh, you know, you have to grab it when you can. And I think that that is the key to how to pull away from him or, or towards yourself, you know, the lessons that I think he would want us to learn. I mean, he's very conscious, you know, of uh, people uh, when they listen to him and so forth. I think that that's the key. In, I think, uh, 2019, was it or so? I think uh, it was just pre-COVID that we had a meeting which was initiated by His Holiness, you know, mm -hmm. but it was, um, he, shall we say, nudged, you know, the Muslim community in Ladakh mm -hmm. and its leadership, you know, mm -hmm. to have an interfaith interaction between Buddhism and Islam in New Delhi. And we mm -hmm. had it at in the International Center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was one of the uh, sort of biggest events that I mm -hmm. think that the uh, lay Muslim community or Ladakh Muslim community, mm -hmm. both Leh and Kargil, had, you know, on that occasion. And it was, uh, as I said, initiated by His Holiness. And I wish that we as a community could have, you know, followed it up the following year with mm -hmm. something. And I tried very hard to suggest to the community, you know, I said, His Holiness has done his part. Now let's do our part. You know, even if you do it in Ladakh, even if you do it in a very small way. But, you know, those were tumultuous times um, and so forth in, in many ways. 2018 and 19 were, were difficult years in, in Kashmir uh, and the JNK, then JNK state. And so because of that, it didn't follow up. But it was also because of the you know, people didn't take that initiative, but I hope to revive it, actually, um, mm -hmm. not myself, but, you mm -hmm. know, the community there to say that, hey, you know, you should follow up and uh, we can do it anywhere. We can do it in Leh, we can do it in Delhi itself, you know, somewhere for that thing. So, because I think that that's what needs to happen. He has mm -hmm. these events. 2017 event was very much like that. You know, mm -hmm. but after His Holiness did everything and, and worked so hard, you know, along with the team that he designated, we didn't follow up, yeah. you know. And so what we need to do, I think, sort of the, the profound simplicity of what he says is one part of it, you mm -hmm. know. But I think the other part is his method and mm -hmm. the virtues that he brings mm -hmm. in everything that he does. And so we need to emulate method as well as virtues that, that he brings to the table each time. And then I think that it will catch on like a you know pebble dropped in a pond. The ripple effect can be very good if we listen to. No, and his, you talked about his methodology. I also had a conversation earlier with Dr. Richie Davidson I about see. the science of the mind and his holiness's efforts in promoting human values, compassion and goodness. And Dr. Richie Davidson was saying his holiness challenged the scientists then to look at, not to look at only the problems like stress yes. and anger and issues like that, but also right. to look at what is good in people and you study compassion and, and that's taken off. And I think yeah. in the same way with religion, I think he tells us you know, he speaks about, as I was listening to you, he speaks about talking about the commonalities we have and not about the differences, mm -hmm. bringing those forward. 
I think so. I mean, I, I think that that is uh, what it is. And I, and I think it has to do with not uh, finding in the commonalities some sort of easy unity. You know, it's not. I think, I think that uh, finding, for example, it's very uh, easy to say and think even that oh, all religions are the same, actually. But they're not. They're very different. You know, how a Buddhist prays is very different from how a Christian prays, very different from how a thing. But if we can actually believe that we're all in the end struggling for the same thing, I think then that's, that's a big, uh, that makes a big difference. You know, there's also harm, I think, in pretending that all religions are the same. I mean, both in form, they're not. Uh, it, in essence, they may be the same. But in order to talk about essence, you have to know it. You know, you have to know your own religion very well in order to find uh, commonalities for it with Buddhism, you know, and not just stop at the forms and say, oh, no, no, it's very different. I mean, that's that's also a bad uh, conclusion to come to. I guess what I'm saying is, is that it, it, it's a it's a too facile a thing to say that they're all the same. Uh, but to understand that they're all the same is quite different. And, and how you arrive at it, I think, is different. And I think, in as His Holiness says, in today's world, when yes. we are all, so we're not, you know, separated in our yes. own uh, regions, as we were many years back, but now our societies are so integrated that integrated. our yes. neighbors, we have so yes. many different religions yes. together. Yes. It's yes. all the more important, His Holiness. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, another very poignant incident with His Holiness was a later meeting after my teenage meeting, you know, and this was still late teenage, but I was about to leave New Delhi and come to the U.S. for my BA, you know, my uh, degree, uh, BA degree. And my father said, you know, you must go to His Holiness and, and you must uh, speak to him and so forth. It was my father would occasionally sort of just out of the blue say, you better go and visit. So I would you know, I, I went um, and visited him and, and I kept saying to him, no, I really want to help the Tibet cause. So please tell me, what should I do? What should I do? He never said anything, you know, and he's eventually he said to me on that same one occasion, uh, the second, uh, not, it wasn't the second, but it was you know, one of the early times when I met him. He said, don't worry, just practice your religion, even when you're in the U.S., and and he didn't say anything about Tibet or so forth. So I remember being a little bit disappointed. You know, here I was, you know, I was saying I want to do something. But, but I think he, he, you know, it had a meaning. I mean, much later in life, I've understood why he said that. So it's, it's he's, he's very, uh, yeah, I mean, his, in a way, he is very elliptical in how he approaches, I guess, you know, he approaches different individuals in different ways. But you know that I remember that so very clearly. You know that he said what he said to me at the, on that occasion. Goes back to I think what you said earlier about his point in going also recognizing the Hazar Muslim community in Ladakh, all of those keeping those connections because those yes. are all important aspects of Tibet that have a relevance also and the message yes. today as yes. well. Yes, very much. Mm -hmm. You know. The important aspect being that there was a community there. I mean, you know, people were different, but still got along and went along very well.
got along perfectly. And in fact, yes. the Muslim communities, we always admire the Muslim community on how well spoken their Tibetan words as com is yes. compared to. Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes us, because I grew up in exile, so my Tibetan is kind of a hodgepodge of different regions. <laughs> Yes. But the, the Muslim communities, yeah. um, Tibetan, yeah. pure Very, Yes, yes, because they had to depend almost entirely on on thing because uh, they were not necessarily uh, lettered in Tibetan. They didn't know how to read, and I mean, quite a few of them did, but most of them would not. So they were dependent totally on the spoken word, and they polished it, I think, and and did very well at it. Thank you, Sadiqla. Anything else you would like to add before we? I, I mean, um, no, I think one of the things that I think is important in terms of observations of his um, holiness's engagements, you know, is we have to really appreciate his sacrifice. And, and the sacrifice uh, is essentially is that I have no doubt that because of the, you know, sort of it, it is because of his bodhisattvic sense of duty, you know, towards uh, all uh, living beings, uh, sentient beings, um, uh, things. And and I think that that's important because this was no small sacrifice. You know, I'm sure that he would uh, preferred, he would have preferred to study, read, meditate, you know, and basically become a Tathagata, thus gone, if you will. But he has sacrificed that, you know, in order to in the at the core of it of course the tibetan community and and its uh sort of exilic existence to somehow mitigate the pain of that you know but also in the larger sense you know now broadening his uh scope so to speak to speak about ethics um and uh, secular ethics and the need for people to you know i mean i think i think that these are very precious sacrifice uh, sacrifices that he's made and I think it's important for us to recognize that. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Siddhikla. Thank you. All right. With that. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching and listening to this episode of Tibet Talks. We'll be back next week with the third episode in this special series, looking at His Holiness's third commitment, a commitment to the preservation of Tibetan culture. You don't want to miss that either, so make sure to check it out. But until then, as we always say on Tibet Talks, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Tujache. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.